Welcome back to the Committed Innovator Podcast. In this episode, I talk with my friend, Sean Brown. He's our communications director for McKinsey's strategy and corporate finance practice. Sean and I discuss what we've learned over the past year, interviewing so many different committed innovators and gleaning the lessons they've learned through the experiences of innovating. We talk about the Middle East, we talk about recent trips to Israel, and we really try to tease out the so what's of all of our conversations, as well as look ahead to what we're hoping to learn in the coming year. I hope you enjoy this session. So Eric, to start off, it'd be great to just hear a little bit about your trip to Israel and the innovation leaders that you spoke there and give us a little background on why you chose to go to Israel and and what we might be able to learn from the innovation ecosystem there. Israel has always been a special ecosystem that many around the world, as I've traveled and advised on the topic of innovation, are curious to learn, number one, why has it existed in the way that it has? And then more frequently, how can we replicate it? What is it that makes it work and could be ported to other innovation centers around the world or even large enterprises that want to replicate aspects of the Israeli ecosystem. And there's also, I think, a lot of curiosity from enterprises themselves as to how can I tap into it? What Mm. what can I do to optimize my ability to extract the knowledge, capabilities, skills, technologies that are emerging from this vibrant mix of extraordinarily talented individuals with technical knowledge and a framework that's been put around them to encourage entrepreneurialism, venture capital, flows, and access to the rest of the world. Eric, how long has Israel been a leader in innovation like this? When the big corporates came in and figured out the talent pool and the supply of technologies that they could access, that really changed the game. Well, and a number of those companies that were founded and built up in Israel then sold for billions of dollars. And so I could see that providing a really strong incentive. All you need is a few unicorns and people look and say, wait, what happened over there? What happens to the folks as they, as these innovations that are um, manifested in small companies that become unicorns that then get purchased, what happens to them? Do, do, do the tech capabilities stay in Israel? I think in the best case scenario, you have the ability of a larger enterprise to acquire either the talent or the technology for these small ventures and incorporate it in a meaningful way into their platforms. And I think you see this certainly in the tech space, a little bit in the Mm -hmm. ag space, pharmaceutical, and it's very successful. It scales. I think more often those companies are relying on that technology to build a meaningful new business platform. So it's almost like the incentives are aligned. And the talent is a lot of what makes Mm -hmm. Israel special. And there are many, many serial entrepreneurs in Israel. Uh, That was part of the fun of the trip, the last one. I I met quite a few who took... Their technology startup are now applying it to, you know, a totally different way of thinking about retail mm. and thinking about RFID tags or, you know, frictionless shopping. Now they're doing it for big data and advanced analytics and in, in purchase journeys. You know, so right. you have this this amazing talent in serial entrepreneurs that that do recycle. They do go back and like you you see in any venture hub around the world that that just are in it for the startup or in it for the creation of the technology, are in it for the thrill of of creating, you know, developing a new entity. That's actually part of what I think uh, innovation needs in order to be successful and to re- reinvent itself cons- consistently. And would you say some of the things that have made Israel such a special place for fostering innovation have continued? Anything that you're seeing changing in terms of the dynamics based on your visit? You know, it's interesting. I, I had the, the opportunity just recently to go to the Middle East again. 
I also got a chance to go visit some of the other cities where they're grappling with similar questions. To sit in the Emirates and in Dubai and have them reference Israel as a place that they would like to emulate. It was an amazing set of interactions. Um, I don't know if you, many know, but there are now flights that go back and forth from Israel to Emirates. And the agreements are in place for collaboration, which is almost hard to imagine, but it's it's true. And why not become a new innovation hub? This is a place that actually has innovated. The concrete pump that was required to build the Burj Khalifa, the, the most you know 150 story building, that didn't exist before. It was created for the building of that building. If anyone's ever traveled on Emirates and gone through the Dubai International Airport, that airport handles more traffic than almost all the airports in the world. And so the systems for baggage handling, processing people, moving those in giant A380s in and out so seamlessly had to be created. There is innovation across the Middle East that already exists. And the question mm. they were asking, which is, you know, peering over at, at their friends in Israel, is how can we be like that? What does it take to be an ecosystem? What is it that, you know, makes up for a place like in Israel or like a Silicon Valley or like, you know, Singapore is emerging still or, or a Shenzhen? What, you know, what is it about these places that all of a sudden you see this unbelievable burst of energy and activity around technology and innovation? Building it is one thing, but you, you alluded a little bit, I think, to Israel's culture as well. Maybe double click on that in terms of how that interfaces with this notion of the need to continually innovate. Israel is a surprisingly open and, and very commercially oriented place mm -hmm. where it has the combination of very talented engineers and scientists coming together with big challenges in a government facilitated framework that allows for capital flows and seed funding for ventures. Mm -hmm. I get the question all the time from enterprises, how do we create innovation at scale? It's my favorite question. If you think about what I just said, it's the same kinds of things, different context, but an environment that can create or a context that can create a combination of clarity around what challenges need to be solved, the technical talent, know-how, and hopefully technologies itself that can manifest those solutions, and business models or frameworks, whether they be government facilitated or economically feasible, the business models that solves for those, those problems to scale profitably. Normally profitably, because you need something to reinvest in, in, in the scaling. But those three elements, in my experience throughout the years, always have to be true. You have to have all three. Sometimes you have regulation that, that plays around with the three and changes the incentives and accessibility of certain opportunities. But... You have to have those three, the, the clarity of, of the frustration you're solving for, the technologies to create that solution, and the, and the economics to have it scale. So Eric, we're in some pretty volatile times right now. I'm sure you'd agree with that. And Israel has also seen its share of uh, volatility. Can you just comment on the effect of volatility on innovation and perhaps the inverse, which is to what extent does innovation provide resilience? in times of economic volatility. The uncertainty of current times, I think, just shifts what kinds of opportunities might be available. Let's, let's just take the pandemic as, a, as an example. May said, oh, well, innovation's dead. People will no longer collaborate. But what happened? We actually had one of the most intense, innovative periods of recent memory. People came together. Entities came together in a way they never had before to solve that challenge in a time frame that is unheard of. We are all a beneficiary of incredible innovation in a period of uncertainty and calamity. Many companies need to like rethink how they had to operate 
just in the context of our COVID world. That's innovation. Innovation is really about confidence, right? Every innovation process, whether it's agile, linear, whatever, it's about moving an idea or a concept through a series of development and or learning gates that get you to something you have confidence in investing more in so you scale it. And so you say, okay, well, if we're in times of incredible uncertainty and volatility, it may be harder to generate the evidence to build the confidence to invest more in innovation. But you can't ignore the context. And so you have to say, well, maybe I need to change my approach to accommodate the context. And I would say, yes, that is a good idea. And I think it's not an accident that we have so many conversations these days around growth and they're tied to operating model. Operating model is a fancy term for how do we make decisions? How do we allocate resources or reallocate them? How do we make the, you know, how do we have the process in place to allow this innovation to be developed? The, the interest in those has increased as the volatility and uncertainty of the times has increased because it's harder to launch successful things using standard historic processes that tend to be quite linear when the market conditions around you are so dynamic. You mentioned growth in the context of many executives may have this desire to sort of batten down the hatches as they think about volatile markets. Um, But at the same time, I think you've led some research on the importance of keeping that focus on growth even through downturns. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, in times of greatest uncertainty and, and economic downturns, what happens to innovation and does the spigot get turned off? And the reality is, yeah, for a lot of organizations, it does. But for those that it doesn't, we find within five to seven years, you've got a 30% valuation advantage. And so they are accelerating out of the turnarounds. So, and well, it may be difficult to do for many, it is the best time to invest or at least continuing investing in innovation during downturns because you'll benefit from those investments you know, as, as things turn. And if you miss out on that, then you're ceding ground to others. Our research on growth and the article we just we just wrote a, a couple months ago really highlighted the difference between top growers. The difference really came down to setting the aspiration. If you have the right ambition level and aspiration that creates room for the proper resource allocation and then having the right pathways and core and adjacencies, and then if you're doing breakout innovation in place with all the capabilities that enable them, again, it, I'm describing an operating model again. If you have that in place relative to the growth you want to achieve, you outgrow. How does this notion of culture connect to the eight essentials of innovation? Mobilize, which is the last of the essentials or the the one that typically is ordered last, although it's not least important, really encapsulates a lot of the cultural cultural elements in terms of the people and the incentive systems and, and development pathways that we would imagine need to be in place in a top innovator. Of course, culture is affected by all of them. Right. So if you have the right aspiration and ambition, you know, that sets the tone for how an organization will act and, and where it's trying to go. You know, one of the most powerful innovation aspirations or aspirations is one that has a clear destination. So if your employees, your enterprise, your organization don't know where they're headed, it's very hard to get there. Working with CEOs and executives, what are the kinds of conversations that come along? Well, they are very interested in, in a more innovative, more creative culture. We've had a lot of discussions around how to set a high enough ambition an aspiration to get the organization inspired to want to achieve something great. It's about really the change management that allows people, especially when you're changing the operating model, which it often does if you're going to make a big cultural change and try to you know grow through more innovation, 
that really educate people on, well, what is it they're supposed to do differently now, now that they're in a new role, now that they're in a new growth vector. And through that working differently, that's how the culture starts to change. You know, I mentioned this notion of, of psychological safety. There's a lot of energy being put into, well, how do you make people comfortable to take risks and comfortable to really bring the best of their own ideas together with the best of other people's ideas? And it's amazing how often that doesn't happen in every organization. You know, there's a whole bunch of fears that come through people who are trying to be successful business people and couple that with cultures that don't celebrate, support, and encourage psychologically safe, dynamic, inclusive environments, then we have a problem. If your company has high fear and low inclusiveness and psychological safety, you are unlikely to be an innovator. So how do you have a scaling, you know, vibrant innovator? It's making sure the culture is there and, and it, you can create it if that is part of the aspiration. You've talked about this before. You can say, hey, let's be innovative and more culturally creative and whatever. And everyone nods and says, oh yeah, we want to be part of that organization. And then everyone says, okay, so who's going to contribute their time and budgets to make it happen? And like crickets in the room. As you look back on some of the conversations you've had as part of your uh, Committed Innovator podcast, any that stood out for those that really handled that really well, that perhaps came into an organization that they needed to overcome that fear or where they had to actually drive that change? I'll go back to the, the, the conversation I had with Tekla. For our listeners, Tekla Back is the, is the founder of the plant-based keto snack company, Kiho. I think she captured a lot of the reality of trying to innovate in large organizations where it was more about activity and just getting it done as opposed to content and the quality. The innovation corridors that are determined by the way their manufacturing assets are set up, by the routes to market, by the business model itself, do shape the, the, the boundaries in which uh, someone in that organization can in, and cannot innovate. And then she was describing her life and how different it was and how you can really pivot and take a lot of the lessons that you always read about and reapply them into building your business. Of course, uh, she'll be the first one to also comment, it's really hard when you're out there on your own and you don't have tens of billions of dollars behind you to make it right. happen. But I think the lessons there were, were, were quite real. The other one I really enjoyed was Amy Brooks on the NBA. The lessons learned, not just her own journey in the NBA of how to, to lead innovation and, and to take on the role she had, but also just learning about what they did during COVID to actually allow basketball to continue and the happy accident of NFTs that they created through Top Shots, which now everybody wants NFTs because they looked at what the NBA had done. And they were one of the first and they did it in, in a way that was, I thought, really interesting, very much in line with how we think about taking smart risks and and just describing how she she's changed the culture there was, was, was great. You've spoken to a lot of committed innovators, but what role does this notion of being like the innovation cheerleader, superhero fit into your push around innovation at scale? Do you need to have that one person who is just really just so single-mindedly focused on driving innovation to achieve long-term innovation success? That's a great question. I do not believe it should be an individual. I think you may need an individual to lead the charge. So, you know, if a CEO or, or an executive team, a group of individuals is, is holding the torch, if you will, but if you can't mobilize the organization to get it done, it's not going to get anywhere. And 
back to the discussion earlier around inclusiveness and diversity and collaborative models and psychological safety, those are all important ingredients to allowing innovation to continue and scale repeatedly. Because without them, you may get one off, but you're not going to get multiple. And if you're in a large enterprise, you're going to need many, hopefully big ones, not, not lots of little incremental ones, but big, bigger ones to make it happen. And so you can have someone who orchestrates, someone who facilitates, someone who is creating the conditions for success. You probably need someone who's thinking about that all day. And it's hard for the CEO or other leaders to probably do that all day. But don't put them off in the corner in an innovation accelerator or incubator or whatever and say, come up with new stuff. That's where your desire to transform the culture, to innovate at scale, and to really change a growth trajectory probably will fall apart. We had spoken earlier about the Israeli innovation culture. Do innovators, do they like to be in a community? And if so, is it a community within a company, a community across companies? In other words, the broader context of what fosters innovation. I suspect we, we might find that the best innovators around the world that we would discover may not actually enjoy being in a community, but may require being part of a community to help their innovations be successful. Because the great innovators are on the edge. They're a little bit challenging orthodoxies. They're doing things differently. And that's hard to operate in a community contract when you're challenging the, the effectively existing norms. However, and this is the irony, you can't probably scale and or be successful with your innovation without the community. You require others. It has to be true that others get involved. Otherwise, your technology will stay on the drawing board somewhere. So as you think back on the conversations that you've had this year and, and beyond, what are some of the key learnings that you've got for someone who aspires to be an innovator? Well, I think there are different kinds of innovators. There are some that's the inventor innovator. They are going to create the technology and, and be the tinkerer of of something completely new and then working with others to scale it. And there's another type, which you could find in a large organization, which is like the manager innovator, right? They're, they're really good at, at, at leading an initiative, bringing the right different resources and capabilities and skills together and, and marshalling them through a larger entity and knowing, knowing exactly which strings to pull in. There's probably another one, which is a dot connector, just really good at finding the different parts of the puzzle and connecting them up they see things that others don't, right? Because they're right. seeing all these different... So, you know, what they all may have in common is a little bit of an insatiable curiosity to learn, a little bit of a tolerance to take risks outside the norm and, and, and be okay with not always succeeding. But they have to be, I believe, technically oriented. I think it's very difficult to be a successful innovator unless you have the capacity to understand technology. Whatever the area of technical competency that's required, you at least have to be able to know enough about it or know how to ask the right questions about it to get really deep because the technical aspect of it, it's actually part of the value creation engine. The best innovators also have some business savvy. They're, they're, they understand the marketplace. They understand customers really well. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of customer back or, or consumer-centric innovation. Whether it's one person or a team of people that come together, it doesn't matter. We actually have an article that says, you know, it's very difficult to find the one person. However, you can create high-performing innovation teams which have pieces of all of these capabilities on them. Chances are you're going to win over and over again. And then if you can do it with the culture of that team that's 
inclusive and psychologically safe and has a lot of diversity of, of, of thinking on it, then yeah, that team will be very resilient in the face of uncertainty and, and volatility and whatever else it faces to try to create and, and scale the innovations they work on. But is it the kind of thing where you can wake up one morning and say, these are some steps that I'm going to take personally to try and be more open to innovation? Great innovators listen a lot. I think they are attuned to the environment around them. Maybe the, the lesson that I try to impart on many is the difference between assertions and assumptions. I think a great innovator knows when something that's being asserted is actually an assumption. To understand the difference is important because when you're dealing with a certainty, you're less likely to challenge it. It's an assertion. And therefore, you will follow it blindly, perhaps, and it may run you into a ditch, right? Versus a great innovator is going to treat that same statement as an assumption. And then they may set up how they approach that, that statement differently. Being open to learn something about that statement and say, you know, I'm seeing something different. I'm feeling like it's not what you just said. If you're facing something that just doesn't look like it's supposed to, do you just keep going? But it's true of many large organizations. Or do you say, oh, you, you raise the flag and say, wait a minute, this isn't right. We need, to, we need to go a different direction here. And then can you galvanize people? How can you really think about what is it that motivates others and how can you motivate those others to come together to achieve whatever it is this innovation is meant to achieve? I think some of those attributes, asking a lot of questions and understanding what's assertion versus assumption and, and how do you access talent and capability differently and put them together. Great innovators know how to do that. And of course, you got to have some funding. And although you don't have to spend a lot of money, certainly not as much money as, as most organizations spend when they're, when they're going out about innovation. Our, our, our ongoing statistic of 86% of leaders put innovation as a top priority and only 6% are satisfied. The investments pay out in the way they should. I mean, there's a $2.5 trillion spent each year on R&D and innovation-related spend. 6% are satisfied with their return on investment. This is such a massive, massive challenge. Thanks again for the time, Eric. It was real fun. All right. Thank you, Sean. Thank you all for joining us on The Committed Innovator today. I want to thank Sean and McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice for hosting us and helping provide what I hope is a fascinating conversation around what we're learning and what we hope to learn in the coming year. Thanks again for listening and talk to you again real soon.